Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 158, The Long March, part 2. Alright, I think here at the start of the second leg of this story, we might benefit from a little recap. And before I even get started with that, I wanted to drop a small recommendation to you, the listener. I'll fully admit that while the Communist Party of China is, long-term, the most important faction in the context of Chinese history that I've been covering, my purpose here is talking about how World War II came together. And that means the far more important topic on this show is what the Kuomintang was up to during these years. However, if you are interested in a far more detailed look into how the Chinese Revolution came together and progressed, you should check out a podcast called People's History of Ideas, if you haven't already. The topic of the show is talking about revolutionary activity in general, but as of January 2024, it has been almost entirely focused on the Chinese Revolution. Again, if you want more than the broad strokes I've given you on the CPC for the past two seasons, it's a show well worth checking out. Anyway, previously on The Long March. The Communist First Front Army began its long trek across China to escape its siege from Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT. It started in the southern reaches of Jiangxi province, in the southeast of the country, and headed in a westerly direction. The simple objective had been to link up with the Second Army under He Long, another Red Army and CPC leader who operated a smaller Soviet where the Hunan and Hubei provinces met. Cheng's response to the march had been slow, and only around the Jiang River in northern Guangxi province had a large-scale battle been forced. And while the Communist First Army had been able to continue on, its numbers had been halved over those first few months, and a large NRA force blocked their passage to the north to link up with the Second Army. These setbacks led to Mao, supported by Zhu Di and Zhao Enlai, to take over leadership of the expedition and, effectively, the CPC as a whole during the Zunyi Conference. Zunyi being the city in Guizhou province that the First Army had captured and set up shop in for several weeks at the start of 1935 in order to rest and recoup. Even before taking Zunyi, Mao had enforced a change in destination. What had been a western march to reach Heilong would now swing north, to link up with Zhang Gutao and his 4th Army operating out of northern Sichuan province. Zunyi is already in northern Guizhou, close to the border with Sichuan, so on a map, crossing the province to meet up with their comrades seemed totally doable, especially considering the vast distances they had, they had already covered. But of course, as you might guess, with this being only the start of part two, entering Sichuan from their position was easier said than done. I've spoken in prior episodes that the basin that dominates eastern Sichuan made for a natural fortress, and I wasn't exaggerating. They would have to cross mountain gorges carved by the mighty Yangtze River, and then once across, they'd have to breach the ring of mountains surrounding the basin, and then get across the bulk of the province. The First Army had at its disposal around 50,000 fighters on a good day, or around half the starting army. When they resumed the march north, the Guizhou warlords rushed up behind them, picking the pursuit back up themselves. The Red Army initially managed to drive off the Sichuan troops sent to block them from marching north, but by this time, the Sichuanese had finally allowed Chiang Kai-shek to send his own forces into their province. This mostly took the form of officers sent to reorganize the badly-led warlord troops, but there were some combat units as well. When Mao reached the Yangtze River, he quickly realized crossing it was impossible. The NRA had set up too many defenses, and the river was simply too big of an obstacle. 
The First Army turned back south towards Zunyi on February 27, 1935, mauling the Guizhou troops that had been following them. Now came a desperate dance, as Mao ordered the Red Army into separate groups marching back and forth across several areas, trying to disrupt the KMT's forces that were descending on them from all directions. In response to the growing encirclement that was forming around him, he identified a weak point to the west and broke through another batch of unenthusiastic Sichuanese troops. At the end of May, the Red Army then turned south towards Guiyang, the capital Guizhou in the heart of that province. This was yet another delicate situation where the communist leadership had to make things up as they went along. They were deep in enemy territory, in ground they were unfamiliar with, and multiple plans of theirs had already failed. A complaint of the rank and file was that they had no idea where they were going, and suspected neither did leadership. Gui Yang seemed the obvious target, but the communists had managed to capture a number of detailed maps of Yunnan province on their march towards that city. Gui Yang might have been a provincial capital, but it was also an obvious non-starter as far as a base. Taking it would not have changed their overall situation. Chang would still be hot on their heels. Plus, Chiang Kai-shek had personally flown in there to take command of the city's defenses, so it was going to be a slugging match that they couldn't afford. Armed with maps of Yunnan, though, new possibilities emerged for the First Army. Yunnan is a province I've mentioned a bit here and there, but never covered in detail. In a nutshell, the reasons are its geographic isolation and the local warlord's inclination towards staying home. They joined bigger alliances and occasionally sent some help, but the bulk of their strength was kept at home. And what a home it was. I've gone on and on about the rugged, mountainous nature of southern China, and most of the province is that, plus a whole bunch of jungle. It's on the border with Indochina, after all, so that checks out. Anyway, the place was borderline impossible to invade on account of the terrain and the lack of infrastructure. Except the Red Army didn't want to invade it, they just wanted to pass through. And the Yunnan warlords were mostly okay with that. Mao ordered more faint attacks on Guiyang and the Yunnan provincial capital, Kunming, to draw off his pursuers. The series of ruses worked, and the NRA found themselves hopelessly out of position to the south while the Red Army entered the northern corner of Yunnan, with the intent to pass through the area into western Sichuan. In addition to the maps, this was actually Zhu Di's home turf, where he was from, so despite this being so far from where they had started, the communists were able to navigate effectively. By the start of May 1935, they had cleared the Jinsha River and had passed into southwestern Sichuan. This leg of the trip presented new dangers as the CPC was now entering areas inhabited by non-Han Chinese ethnicities. And these guys were not so big on their, you know, distant overlords to the east. The two big groups of people to know about are the Yi and the Tibetans. The Yi can trace their ancestry more towards Burma than China and oftentimes fiercely fought for their autonomy. In the age of the warlords, they largely sequestered themselves from the rest of the country, and travelers could assume that they'd be waylaid, robbed, and possibly killed if they went through their turf. The appearance of 60 to 70,000 communists, though, warranted um, a light touch. There were some skirmishes between the Yi and Red Army, mostly when small groups encountered each other, but both groups were terribly interested in a throwdown fight. On the Yi side, there was some confusion as to who they were even dealing with. They were vaguely aware of the KMT and its wars to the east, but they were totally unfamiliar with the CPC or what exactly they were fighting for. 
That being said, the communist message was universal enough that some among the Yi signed up with the Reds and joined the march, so it wasn't like they were, you know, dumbfounded with the ideology. It became apparent quickly enough that neither side meant really to harm each other, and the Yi settled for shaking down the communists for much of their money in exchange for safe passage through their lands. Although the Yi were not one monolithic group, so the communists had to tell their story and get shaken down several times on their way west and then eventually turning 90 degrees north. The Tibetans were another issue. You are probably passingly familiar with them, they had been part of the Qing Empire, uh, had de facto broken away close to its fall, and had been operating as a quasi-state under the auspices of the religious establishment there. Now, there hadn't been a lot of formal discussions concerning borders or who managed what, and the area of western Tibet, called by the Chinese Jikang, that is adjacent to Sichuan, existed in a weird zone where they acted almost as if they were part of both Tibet and China, and sometimes neither. And wouldn't you know it, just as the first army passed through western Sichuan, the Tibetans of the region were fighting a war against what passed for central authority in Tibet. At the same time, the Sichuan warlords were harrying those rebels from the east. When the Red Army passed through, the Tibetan rebels didn't distinguish between them, and their encounters were almost always hostile. I'm not going to get into the rebels' whole deal, as even I have my limits. Uh, just remember that as exhaustive as I try to be, there were still more wars and skirmishes taking place in the hidey holes of the world, out of sight and out of mind, save for those who had to endure them. The region also marks a change in scenery. Now, instead of mountains, rivers, and heavy forests, it's mostly just mountains and rivers. It also got a lot colder. Uh, Western Sichuan is far more like Tibet than the eastern half of the province, and travel was confined to the narrow valleys between the peaks. This limited the options of the Red Army and hemmed them in as Chang slowly chased them from behind. The good news was that the Sichuan troops ahead of them were the true bottom of the barrel. After these past two episodes, you really shouldn't have a high respect for these provincial troops, and in the western part of Sichuan, you would come across some of the worst examples. The reason for this was because it wasn't expected for the Red Army to head this way, so better quality units hadn't been sent in. And while the local garrisons had been put on alert, they weren't in a position to engage the communists. More so than elsewhere, they weren't trained and their equipment barely worked. Seriously, in many instances, their guns didn't even function properly, which was going to play a big role in the Red Army's survival. Despite only having a handful of positions to defend, as the mountains and valleys created perfect choke points to defend from, the Sichuanese were bowled over, failing to offer effective resistance even as the communists had to take ferry boats across river rapids. The most glaring example of this incompetence was in the celebrated Battle of Luding Bridge and the Dadu River crossing. Luding, and its bridge for that matter, were small potatoes in the grand scheme of things. It was a small village in a region filled with them, and the bridge was a walking one made of chain. The way it worked was that large iron chains had been stretched across the river, and wooden planks laid over the chains provided a surface. It was not an impressive sight, but the Red Army had to cross from the western side of the north-south running Dadu River before continuing north, and they needed a crossing, any crossing. In the village was a regiment of troops acting as the defenders. Orders had come down from Chang that the bridge was supposed to just be broken apart, that way there was no risk of it being captured, but the soldiers were locals who didn't want their only bridge in the area destroyed. 
So they opted to remove the wooden boards, leaving just the chains. Or at least that's how the story goes. There's some controversy here. The vanguard of the Red Army that approached the town was small, only a few hundred men. They had marched some 50 miles through rain and cold and had gotten ahead of the main group by some distance. On May 28th, the order came through that they would have to attack while heavily outnumbered and take the bridge at all costs the very next day. It was decided to send a volunteer group of 22 heavily armed soldiers to clear the defenses directly overlooking the bridge. They were given the handful of submachine guns and grenades available for that purpose. This is where the controversy comes in. The CPC account is that the troops charged across the chains through withering machine gun and mortar fire, whereupon they easily dispatched the defenses and held off the main Sichuan force long enough for their comrades to make the crossing to join them. Dramatic and possibly impossible. Counter depictions offer other accounts. It might have been that only half of the bridge's boards were removed, offering an easier trip across or that the communists had prepared ad hoc boards to lay down on the bridge themselves. Then there was the case of the defenses. The CPC claims the defenders were heavily armed, but others say all they had were antiquated rifles that didn't even work, meaning the defenders certainly fired at the charging communists and they made noise like they were shooting, but the bullets they were using had old powder and it proved impossible to actually hit anything. Whatever the case was, the bridge was taken with next to no losses, and the regiment defending Luding dissolved into the countryside. By June 2nd, the 1st Army had completed its crossing, and they were through the province's western defenses. At this point, the 1st Army was actually close to Zheng Tao and his own 4th Army by only 100 miles. It's probably worth pausing for a moment and talking about Zheng's own journey up to this point. He was part of the communist old guard who took control of the 4th Army Soviet that covered parts of Hubei and Anhui province's border areas in late 1931. Unlike Mao, Zhang was not under so much scrutiny from the Central Party, and he had a freer hand in placing the Soviet under his direct authority. The pattern of his campaigns out east was similar to those experienced by the 1st Army during the early 30s. The army stayed mobile and picked off targets of opportunity, but lacked the capability to seize major urban centers that the party's leadership coveted. But because the 4th Army operated so close to Wuhan, Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang could not count on that lack of capability as being a given, and the NRA forces were concentrated against them at the same time the Jiangxi Soviet was coming under siege as well. On October 12, 1932, almost exactly two years prior to the start of the Jiangxi Soviets' own march west, Zhang and his 60,000-odd troops decamped and started marching. On account of their constant maneuvers around Wuhan, they had not had the luxury of fortifying or securing their Soviet to the same degree as their counterparts in Jiangxi, and the effort of the battles they had fought had also drained their fighting capability. Chang appreciated this, and the deciding factor for Zheng to go west was a series of battles during September 1932 where the NRA caught him out in the open, costing him thousands of men he couldn't afford to lose. In just a few weeks, the 4th Army managed to cover most of the Hubei province and reached the border with Shanxi, close to where China proper ended. The initial move was to seize Xi'an, the provincial capital of Shanxi, in early December, but the local warlords pulled themselves together enough to force the communists south. Zhang was feeling the pressure and had to establish a long-term base as he had lost two-thirds of his starting forces and his own men were questioning where the heck they were even going. Luckily for Zhang, and not so much for the greater CPC, 
Zhang was starting the fourth encirclement campaign of the Zhangji Soviet around this time, and regular NRA troops had been withdrawn back east. This left Zhang with a free hand to establish a base in northern Sichuan, where he could rebuild his army. He didn't escape criticism for his retreat, as the party was rather annoyed with him booking it west with far less of a fight when compared to the First Army, but once it became clear at the start of 1933 that he had successfully set up a viable Soviet out west, uh, they dialed back their recriminations. It might come in handy later on. And that's basically where the Fourth Army hung out, until, that is, until the fall of 1934, when the full attentions of the NRA turned west in the wake of the Long March. Zhang might have actually been annoyed at Mao's trajectory as it brought the KMT into Sichuan in force. Chiang Kai-shek wasn't fixated solely on Mao, he also turned the NRA against Zhang as well, making it impossible to remain in the northern part of the province. The Soviet he had so painstakingly built up over the past two and a half years would have to be abandoned. There was little to be done, though, and Zhang turned west and moved to link up with his comrades. The Union would be delayed by five weeks, though, as the First Army would have to mountaineer across some of the tallest mountains in Sichuan. And I do mean mountaineer. They didn't have a pleasant valley to march through this time, with the Army having to tra traverse elevations of up to 16,000 feet. Again, this is basically eastern Tibet, so despite it being June, this area was also cold as all hell. Which is painful to think about when you remember, these are guys coming from the south of China. Their clothes were thin, their footwear made of straw. The elements were absolutely brutal on these guys, and frostbite was the expectation, not the exception. Hundreds, maybe thousands, died of exposure heading northeast. It was a grueling five weeks of climbing, especially over what was locally called the Snowy Mountains, which, if anything, the name is an understatement. The peaks offered breathtaking vistas, but they couldn't stick around to enjoy them lest they freeze to death. Against all odds, they made it, and the vanguard connected with the 4th Army in the mountain communities north of Chengdu. The union between communist armies was a joyous one as comrades rushed to embrace one another. The meeting between Zhang and Mao, though, did not go terribly well. Zhang was Mao's senior in the party and had not been tainted by defeat like Bo Gu had. In fact, it looked like Zhang was doing the best out of everybody, his army was relatively intact and fresh still. His plan, though, gave the rest of the CPC leaders pause. He had been forced out of northern Sichuan, and he felt that the best course of action was to head into southwestern Sichuan, northern Yunnan, and Tibet and build a new home where Chang could not follow. This was not what the others wanted to hear. One, they had just come from that way. They knew the region was unsuitable to build a new Soviet. The non-Chinese minorities wouldn't follow them, and they were too poor to support their combined Red Army. Second, their objective was national revolution, isolating themselves in the fringes where they couldn't hope to build their support in the rest of the country was insane. They'd just waste away out there. The rest of the leadership overruled Zhang, and he publicly accepted their decision. The question was once again, oh, what now then? What had originally been called the Western March was now being called the Long March, and Mao promised there would be only one leg left on the journey. They would continue north, out of Sichuan, towards Ningxia and Shanxi provinces, to the very northwest edges of China proper. The warlords there were weak, it was far from Nanjing, and a small communist army was already active in the area, and it was close to Mongolia and ergo the Soviet Union. Mao's argument won out, but there was still a good deal of mistrust. 
Nobody was sure if Zhang would actually follow the plan once underway, so the decision was made to mix up the two armies. Elements from both would be transferred between one another, with Zhu Di leaving Mao's service and going along with Zhang. Ahead of them was the rest of the Snowy Mountains and the last great barrier on their trip north, the Grasslands. That name doesn't sound so bad. In fact, it sounds downright pleasant compared to some of the places the Red Army had passed through. But in keeping with the spirit of this podcast, it was actually going to be the worst stretch yet. If you look at pictures of it, the area looks fine. A grassland, nothing too exciting. Serene, pleasant. It's a large area covering the north-central part of Sichuan, where its provincial borders met that of Qinghai and Shanxi. Appearances deceive, though, because a lot of water moved through the area thanks to rivers and lakes, and there wasn't a lot of drainage going on. What I'm saying is that underneath that healthy-looking grass was a deadly cold swamp. You step into the grass expecting ground, and instead you find several feet of water and mud. Quicksand, like in the movies, might not be real, but mud definitely is, and there was enough to suck a man in and kill him. All the Red Army men passing through remarked on how alien the landscape of the region was. Even before reaching the core swamps of the grasslands, they were struck at the emptiness. There were next to no villages or settlements, no trees, just wide open expanses and unobscured skies. It might as well have been the moon, and the men felt as though they were no longer even in China, just an uncomfortable, alien land. The local Tibetans had mostly decamped and felt obliged to reinforce that feeling, and smaller groups of soldiers were constantly being attacked by Tibetan raiding parties. The terrible adventure into the grasslands began in late August 1935 and would take a week for the army to cross. Advance parties led by local guides would have to lay out rope to show the way to those who followed. Even with guides, getting lost was common. Conventional rest was impossible in the marshes, as there wasn't anywhere to sleep without drowning. Men had to brace themselves up against each other while standing in order to even get a proper breather. Snowstorms passed over the area, blanketing it in slush. The cold and elements affected them badly, and some collapsed from exhaustion and died in the standing water. Guide ropes were lost, creating traffic snarls. Where once the army could cross dozens of miles in a day, they were lucky if they made half a dozen in the mud. Disease was rampant, there was no food in the marshes except what they took with them, and the army had procured green wheat from local Tibetans. But there was no way to cook the grains in the swamp, so they had to be eaten raw. For Southerners whose bodies were used to rice and not green wheat, this was disastrous as the grains made them sick and couldn't even be properly digested, so they starved on top of everything else. For some who ate the unmilled grain, their intestines were wrecked so badly that they died. They foraged for what they could, but there was only so much around that was edible. Uh, barley fields left behind by the local Tibetans who had fled in their wake were harvested, which led Mao to remark that the only debt the CPC had incurred on the march was to those Tibetan farmers. For those who survived, the near-universal opinion was that the grasslands was the worst experience of the march by far. Hundreds died, but the army made it, feeling blessed to be out of the swamps and into the oddly welcoming sight of the dry expanses of the northwest. Except they hadn't all gotten across. The plan had been for the two separate red columns to link up in southern Gansu province, 
but Zheng's army wasn't anywhere to be found. Zheng Gutao had taken one look at the grasslands and figured it was a suicide mission to try and cross it, and decided to go off and follow his own long-term plan. It's debated over whether Zhu Di willingly went along with Zhang or if he was effectively a captive, but all the same, Zhang took off for the south. That the CPC had attempted to stop this by transferring troops between the 1st and 4th armies indicates that this was not a surprise and probably just made everybody mad that their machination had failed. He radioed in that rising waters on a local river and his inability to secure passage to the edge of the grasslands had forced him to break off the attempt. It was a bad excuse and quickly dispelled when it turned out that some of Zhang's officers who had been mixed in with the 1st Army were told by Zhang to arrest Mao and the CPC leadership. Easily dismantling that plot, Mao and his marchers continued north. Exiting the grasslands, the Muslim Chinese warlords of Qinghai and Ganzhou harried the 1st Army as best they could with their cavalry, but like so many other warlords in the region, they were largely cut off from the armories of the world and had the worst equipped and trained soldiers in China. More good news for the 1st Army was that they had kind of a welcoming committee waiting for them. A formation of soldiers that had been left behind uh, as a rearguard for the 4th Army when it left the Anhui and Hubei area had decided to march northwest after the Zhangji Soviet had itself fallen apart, and they had marched out to northern Shanxi province, about as far away from China proper as you can get. It was a small group, after all. They were the rear guard. Uh, they were about 33,000 men, but thanks to the NRA being distracted everywhere else, they managed to slip over there in good order. A Soviet was established in northern Shanxi, and despite local warlords half-heartedly trying to dislodge them, their numbers slowly grew. For the 1st Army, the trek of over 400 miles into northern Shanxi was a breeze compared to what they had just endured. The first towns they came upon were inhabited by Han Chinese, and people turned out to greet them, and suddenly vast stores of food were opened to them again. The long march was finally coming to a close. But the overall cost of the journey was immense, despite picking up recruits along the way, only about 8,000 men reached the Shanxi Soviet on October 20th, 1935. They were a pathetic sight, barely skeletons and rags. The 10,000 communists of the local Soviet brought them in, though, and despite the poverty they themselves lived in, the journey was over. The unified group would at first live in huts and caves, uh, supplies would still be precarious, but they had a dry home far from the elite formations of the NRA. Just as a little side note, the area they settled down in was a fairly arid expanse of poor soil. It had suffered through a massive famine back at the end of the 20s that had encompassed multiple provinces and resulted in the deaths of around 6 million people or so. So maybe not the best home they could possibly have settled down in, but finally they were far from Nanjing and they would make do with the dusty expanses they now occupied. But while the march of the First Army was over, there were the wayward communists still wandering China. I'm talking mostly about Zhang Tao, whose misadventures constituted basically a whole other long march. He moved into the distant regions where Tibet and Sichuan met and set about carving out his own personal communist fiefdom. Meanwhile, the last of the large base camps in China proper was winding down. He Long still commanded the 2nd Army in western Hubei and Hunan provinces. But as the 1st and 4th Armies disappeared into the fringes, the NRA swung around to deal with He's forces. 
Over six months from February to August 1935, the communists held out in their lonely little outpost in the south, before finally he ordered his last 20,000 troops to head west along a similar route to the First Army. Except they hung a wider arc that took them further west and swung north into what, what is today really fully pretty much eastern Tibet, linking up with Zhang's army in June 1936. The condition of the 4th Army after a year in the mountain wastes was not good. Originally consisting of over 80,000 men, Zhang's forces were down to 30,000, and food was scarce. No reliable Soviet had been established among the locals. Uh, there had been an attempt to seize the Sichuan provincial capital of Chengdu in October 1935, uh, less than a week after Mao had reached his finish line. But Chiang Kai-shek massed 200,000 troops to block Zhang, and after that fruitless battle, he withdrew into eastern Tibet. There, Zhang remained, his troops starving and deserting when the Second Army finally passed through. He long bluntly told Zhang that they were just passing through and had no intentions on staying in the area. The NRA by this time wasn't hounding them, but based on the food situation alone, they couldn't stay. Zhang reluctantly agreed to go north along with Heelong. I say reluctantly because he would have been aware that by then, Mao was in control of the Shanxi Soviet, and with his own army much reduced and his prestige in the gutter, he would be a junior partner. Unfortunately for him, nobody else cared about that at that point, and the joint force continued north. In late October 1936, they too emerged from the grasslands, came into contact with a detachment sent south to meet them, and finished their own long march. The Chinese communists were finally reunited, and men long separated rushed to greet each other as tens of thousands of fresh faces poured into the Soviet. The CPC and the Red Army was whole again. Thousands of men from Mao's army that had been obligated to go with Zhang a year prior, before the first grassland crossing, finally had finished their journey. Effectively, two long marches, once you think about it. And, of course, Zhang could not be content with this scene. Out of pride, he didn't want to be a subordinate to Mao, so he took his army and, after a brief reunion, set out further west to make his own fortune. His plan this time was to march to Xinjiang, take over the region, and then use his proximity to the Soviet Union to build up a new personal base to march east. This plan didn't go well, and over 100,000 Western warlord troops assembled to meet him when he entered Qinghai. Zhang's 20,000 troops might have had experience, but they didn't want to be fighting that fight, and the army fell to pieces instantly. Zheng crawled back to the Shanxi Soviet in January 1937, where he was put on trial and stripped of his positions. He would stick around for a little while, holding menial assignments before abandoning the CPC in 1938. After the Civil War, he would emigrate to Canada, leaving behind his homeland and politics entirely. He should have learned to play nice with Mao, because, oh boy, did the Long March ever solidify his grasp on power. Where so many others fell into disgrace, Mao emerged as the face of the CPC and enjoyed the legitimacy its success brought. They had outfoxed the KMT and created a legendary story for the nation to spread. Guys like Bo Gu and Zheng Guotao, they could be destroyed. Mao could not. Under him, the communists were invincible. And there was that kind of aura around those who took part, and the participants would come to dominate the leadership of the CPC from then on out, as well they should have. Experiences such as the march were deadly and traumatic, but it also instilled a sense of confidence in those that met the challenge and survived it. 
They had lived through the long march. They could survive whatever Chang and the Japanese threw at them. They could make China communist. Revolution was fully on the table. I'll be honest with all of you, I haven't come across anything like this experience elsewhere. This, this is a singular story, even for this show. There hasn't ever been anything like it, and there probably won't be again. I can only imagine the agony and frustration Chang must have felt when he tried to chase the Red Army all across China, only to fail in containing them at every turn. It probably went into his thinking when he finally broke down and accepted making a united front with them. Now, after the First Army's arrival at the Shanxi Soviet, events resumed their familiar rhythm for the CPC, just now in a geographically different area. In February 1936, a massive raid was launched into neighboring Shenzhi province, still ruled by Yan Zhishan. The raid served two purposes. One, it acquired a huge amount of money, food, and fresh recruits. And two, it was a propaganda victory because it was presented as an eastern expedition to attack the Japanese in the eastern part of Inner Mongolia and northern China that they controlled. The fact that Yan and Chang had stopped them was a cause of public scolding. How dare you stop us from fighting the Japanese? While that raid was not intended to seize ground permanently, a western expedition launched in May of that year was. It struck into territory held by Gansu warlords and helped open the way for the arrival of the 2nd and 4th armies. These efforts were primarily to secure the Shanxi Soviet, because while they were expanding territorially, the idea was not actually to conquer China. Uh, as discussed in episode 155, the long-term plan was to make some kind of accommodation with the Kuomintang. At the same time, they lucked out because the local warlords were unenthusiastic about fighting the Red Army, and that did not change when Zheng Zhulang and his Manchurians were transferred in. But that's all a story you heard several weeks ago, and kind of brings me to the end of my coverage on the CPC. Uh, right at the eve of war in July 1937 with Japan, the CPC had not only survived, it had proven to be so much of a problem that Chiang Kai-shek felt it necessary to drop the extermination policy he had pursued for years up to that point and expended so much effort on and just finally just, you know, make a truce with the communists. And this does also conclude my coverage of the Nanjing decade in China overall. For the focus of this miniseries, the Kuomintang and its leader, Chiang Kai-shek, it was both the good years and a time of deep frustration. It was the good years because despite all the corruption, the brawls with the remaining warlords and the intractable communists, this was the height of their power. The KMT started the period as a conquering force and ended it as the established legitimate government. Uh, its areas of control were greater than they ever had been or ever would be. The economy was expanding, the NRA was slowly being modernized. It was frustrating because obviously for one, the Japanese were striking way too fast for those fitful modernization programs to handle, and the wars out in the provinces constantly drained the state's resources. The creation of a united front in early 1937 with the CPC was only a truce. Even if the coming war with Japan was handled neatly, which, a little spoiler, it definitely wasn't, that would not be the end of conflict for nationalist China. For the communists, it was more of a transition period. Being driven underground in 1927 presented challenges that were only worked through in the field by a hard experience. The scattered nature of the movement was reflected best in the Soviets that were themselves scattered about the southern part of the country. But by 1937, the party center was in the city of Yan'an in northern Shanxi, and its leadership was dominated by Mao. 
The near decade of being led by ineffectual party functionaries had ended with the ascension of one of history's giants, who had won a great deal of experience in both the battlefield and at the conference table. The CPC would move forward with a much clearer focus and a lot less lashing out with harebrained schemes that were doomed to failure. The coming war with Japan would be a gift to the communists, as it would exhaust both of their enemies and open the way for them to expand their influence over a larger share of China than ever before. Expect the first part of that conflict later this season. Next week, we will be starting the next miniseries, and we are going back to the USSR and covering the era of the first five-year plan. Which, uh, about that, I suppose you could say that the plan worked, just that it had some uh, consequences you might already be familiar with. I promise this stop in the USSR won't take 30 episodes, mostly because it'll only cover up to around 1934. So expect like 9 to 10. Well, join me then. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.